still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every So what I want to do in this second part of our study together is I said to you, part of dealing with grief is dealing with how you feel, and part of grief is dealing with what you think. And so uh, what I want to do in this lesson is, is talk with you about the goodness of God in the face of evil and suffering, uh, knowing that there's so many different kinds of, of evil in the world and so much suffering in the world. Think about the announcements that Phil gave us earlier. Think about people where there's war right now. Uh, I think about people in our congregation who've lost spouses, who've lost children, who've lost relationships. There's all kinds of suffering. And, you know, what's really ironic is the first time I ever spoke here, which was the summer after we moved here, which was summer of 2014, uh, I decided to talk with you all about the phrase, God is good all the time. And that was at the point at which we thought Christy was done with cancer. And it was just a couple of months before we found out the cancer was back. It's very interesting to go back and look at that lesson and look at these notes and think about how I was feeling about things when I thought everything was going to turn out great as opposed to how things have transpired since. And indeed, when Christy first received treatment and the surgery went well, and she finished her round of chemo, got to ring the bell, there were many people who said God is good. But when we found out her cancer was back and that it was terminal, there were many people who said many wonderful things to us, but nobody said God is good like they did when, when we thought she was healed. Now, does that mean that God changed from before to after? Was God good when I was here in whenever that was, June or July maybe of 2014? And then was God no longer good in September of 2014? Well, this issue, the goodness of God, is central to 
what is sometimes called the problem of evil and suffering. If you lay it out in cold, logical terms, here's what it looks like. If God was almighty, he could prevent evil and suffering. And if God was good, he would prevent evil and suffering. But evil and suffering exist, and so therefore, an almighty and a good God does not exist. Now, of course, most of us don't walk around thinking in syllogisms. You know, that's not how this problem hits us usually. It hits us first emotionally when we feel the anguish and the frustration of a loss. We all want to believe what Psalm 34 says, which is taste and see that the Lord is good. But sometimes it's very hard to feel that. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk with you about this problem, knowing fully that most of all, when somebody's going through suffering, what they need is not a PowerPoint presentation, and they don't need logical argumentation. They need someone to be there with them. And it, I guess if there's any one piece of advice I could give of what has helped me in my suffering, it has been just having people present has been tremendously helpful to me. Not everybody's wired like I am. I can just tell you that that's, that's what's been helpful to me. But there's also a point in which we do need to sort of wrestle with the, the intellectual question. You know, why is it the case if this God who is almighty and all good exists, why is there evil and suffering? So let's think about how we're going to have to tackle this. We certainly can't take issue with point three, evil and suffering exist. We all recognize that. We experience it. Uh, nor can we take issue with point one. If God was almighty, he could prevent evil and suffering. We believe God's almighty and he could prevent evil and suffering. So what that means is that if we're going to tackle this problem, we're going to have to tackle it at point two. If God was good, he would prevent evil and suffering. But before we look at that point in particular, I do think we need to give just a little bit of fair time to the other side of this question, which is, what is the problem of evil and suffering like for those who are not believers. So let's think about, first of all, the problem of evil. If you do not believe that there is a God, then how do you define what is good and what is evil? So I have a lot of friends through a hobby that I have who are not believers. I have a very weird conglomeration of Facebook friends. It's like two different worlds that collide sometimes. And so periodically, I try to do some things to reach out to my friends who are not believers. And uh, so you, some of y'all remember the story of Harambe, the gorilla, uh, in the Cincinnati Zoo. And there was a little, I think, four-year-old boy fell into the enclosure. And the gorilla started to act very aggressively toward the boy. And the zookeepers have like a split-second decision they're going to have to make, either to lay off and see what happens, possibly risking the little boy's life or put the gorilla down. So they, they put the gorilla down. So I raised this question to my Facebook friends who are not believers, and I said, I'm just curious. I know what decision I would make. I'm pretty sure I know what decision you would make. 
But what I'm really curious is, why would you make that decision? Why would you defend the life of the boy over the life of the gorilla? And what was really curious to me is that my friends, and these are very kind people, loving people, people that I enjoy being around. What they basically said to me is, well, it just sort of comes down to this. We're the human team. He was the gorilla team. And he took on one of our team, so we had to take him down. So then I said to them, okay, by the same logic, think about, this wasn't going on then, but think about Russia and Ukraine. If what is right or wrong simply comes down to whose team are you on, and now it's the Russian team versus the Ukrainian team, how do you determine whether it's right or wrong for Russia to do what it's doing? And the way the question that I posed to them was, you know, uh, there are cultures in the world right now that think it's entirely acceptable for their tribe, literally their team, to kidnap little girls from another tribe and sell them into the sex trade. And I said, if what is right and wrong just comes down to what team you're on, then how would you say that what their tribe is doing is wrong when they do harm to the other tribe. And one of my oldest friends, an elementary school friend said, well, I guess I didn't take enough philosophy. Well, you don't have to take any philosophy classes to know you shouldn't sell little girls into the sex trade. And the problem I wanted them to see is if you don't believe there is a God, it is very difficult not to have moral beliefs, but to explain why you have moral beliefs, why some things are right and some things are wrong. As this one philosophy professor says, atheism rejects the distinction between acts that are morally permitted, morally forbidden, and morally required. So from a non-believer's point of view, it's hard even to account for there being a problem of evil because it's hard to say that there is such a thing as good or evil. Y'all with me so far? It hasn't been interactive, so I want to make it more interactive here this second hour. And it gets even worse. So let me illustrate how it gets worse. I'm going to sit down for just a moment because I have some, some bad knees. I was yeah. consulting with my orthopedic team over here, my rheumatologist, Dr. Lloyd, about some things I can try. So I've got an appointment um, this Friday. And when I go, here's what they do. They take me uh, and they do x-rays and they look at my knees. But then I come into the room and then they ask me this question, on a scale of one to 10, how much pain are you in? And sometimes they even show me a chart from frowny face to smiley face. You all know the chart I'm talking about? Now, let me ask you this question. Why, if they've done the x-rays, they've even done an MRI before, why they know everything physically that's going on with my knee? Why are they asking me how much pain I'm in? Well, the reason is because there's more to me than just what an x-ray can see. There is an inner person, a consciousness in the Bible that's called the soul. And in addition to what is physical or material, there is something internal or spiritual, and that's who they're asking the question to. But if atheism is true, and all that exists is just matter, then there's no more to learn than what you would find 
looking at the x-ray or the MRI. See what the point is? There's not really a me to ask because there's nothing outside of the physical body. And so what this professor says in his book is not only does right and wrong not exist, consciousness doesn't even exist. He says the self as conveyed to us by introspection is a fiction. So in other words, there's no you to ask how much pain are you in. There's just molecules to do an x-ray of. Now, I will grant many times on Sunday morning, I do question whether consciousness exists, at least among some of the folks who are in the audience, but I don't question it entirely. And the problem for atheism is when you start to think about what the implications are of all that exists is material, not only is there no evil and good, there's not even any suffering because suffering requires a person to suffer who has the conscious experience of suffering. How many of us truly think, even atheists, that there is no good and evil and there is no pain and suffering? I would say the very fact that it is a universal human experience that there is evil in the world and that there is suffering in the world, tells us there is more to the world than just the material. Now, let me go back to the problem for us. Like I said, we can't challenge point one because we do believe that God is almighty. And I've just made the point, we can't deny that there's evil and suffering. In fact, I think the existence of those is an argument for the Christian view of the world. We have a way to account for those things. But we still need to try to figure out a way to answer this argument. And so the only point at which we can take issue is point two. Is it really the case that if God was good, he would prevent evil and suffering? And I want to break this down part by part. First of all, by thinking with you about what it means to say that God is good. Almost invariably, this is the interactive part here. Almost invariably, when you hear the phrase, God is good, or like me, you say the phrase, God is good, almost invariably, what is the circumstance in which you say that or you hear that? Something good has happened. Now, don't misunderstand. I think when good things happen, we should certainly say that God is good. But do you see there could be a problem here? If we only say that God is good when good things are happening to us, then that can easily turn into believing that the goodness of God hinges on and is completely defined by whether God is doing what I wish he would do. And if we define God's goodness on the basis of what we desire, it's not too much of a further step to say that if God is good, I should be able to do what I desire. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, God wants me to be happy so I can do X, Y, or Z, and X, Y, or Z is completely contrary to what God has said. This is the reason why. Because they have decided that the goodness of God is equal to, I get to do what I want. And if God's goodness equates with you getting what you want, then if God has to do what you want to be good, guess who God is? It's not God. It's you. 
So I believe that God is good all the time, according to scripture, even when bad things happen, because the goodness of God is a much bigger issue than just a simple cliche. So to think about what it means to say that something is good, I want you to think about what it means to say that something is, is bad. Like I said a moment ago, I have some bad knees. Well, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that my knees are lacking something that should be there, uh, cartilage. Every now and then to gross my friends out, I'll do a close-up video of me flexing my knee and then I'll send it to them. And the last description I got was, it sounds like a bowl of Rice Krispies when you first pour the, pour the milk in. So I have bad knees. Something is absent that should be there, cartilage. It's missing something that's supposed to be there. On the other hand, good knees would be knees that aren't missing what they're supposed to have to be good knees. Or a good pass in football. Now, I don't know... If you guys are familiar with that sport here in Gainesville, in Kentucky, uh, though we happen to have a four consecutive year bowl champion football team, and we'd be glad to explain to you what a good pass is in football. A good pass has timing and accuracy. A bad pass lacks what a good pass should have. What's a bad tomato? Some of you pitiless knaves don't think there's such a thing as a good tomato. But for those of us with uh, a palate, a good tomato has good color and good taste and good texture. So you get the point. Something's good if everything it's supposed to have to be the kind of thing it's supposed to be is there. Something's bad when it's missing something it's supposed to have. All right, go with me over to Acts chapter 17. Ultimately, when we say that God is good, then here's what we mean. Unlike a bad knee, which is missing something a knee should have. Unlike a bad tomato, which is missing something a tomato should have. Unlike a bad pass, which is missing something a pass should have. When we say that God is good, what we mean is he is not lacking anything to be God. That he is perfect. That he doesn't need anything else. So here's how Paul explains who God is to a group of unbelieving pagans. This is Acts 17:24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he what? As though he needed anything. Nothing missing in God. In fact, not only does he not need anything, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So then from a biblical standpoint, to say that God is good is far more profound than to say God gave me what I want. To say that God is good means that God is perfect in his existence, lacks nothing. How did he identify himself to Moses at the burning bush? I am. And so really when you think about it, God's goodness doesn't really have anything to do with me at all and has everything to do with who God is as perfect in his existence, which is important on a practical level so that when my wife gets cancer or her cancer recurs, that I don't start to think, well, if God was good, he would behave like I wanted him to. And if he doesn't, then he is not good. Or if I can't do the job that I always wanted to, or if I lost my child, somehow that means God isn't good. No, it doesn't mean that. If we start to think in those terms, 
then we're starting to think that there is some moral obligation out here that God is subject to. But if there's some standard out there that God is subject to, then he himself is not God. So look at the way the writer of Hebrews puts this over in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. He's referring back to the promise God makes to Abraham. And he says this in Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had, listen to this, no one greater by whom to swear. Think about that. When people are elected to office, they're sworn in, almost always in your courtroom. Swear or affirm. Do they use a Bible still in your courtroom? Okay, they swear to to God. Very good. You almost ruined my whole illustration here, Bozari. So, well, why do they swear to God or on the Bible? Because what they're saying is this standard is higher than me and I have to answer to it. Well, if God is perfect goodness, is there any standard higher than him? No. So guess the only thing God can swear by is what? What does the writer of Hebrews say? Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So in other words, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us here is that God is not only good, he is the very source of goodness by which everything else is measured. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that then God just can be a tyrant and a despot and call anything he wants to do good, even if it is evil. That's not it at all. To the contrary, because God is good, perfect goodness, and lacks nothing, he cannot even do evil. I'll explain the point like this. When I was a little kid, so I was raised by my mom and by my grandparents, and we lived down the country away from Anybody else? There were these hateful little kids next door, but I was forbidden to play with them. So I just kind of grew up having fun on my own. And it wasn't like a huge farm, but it was, it was enough that uh, we had problems, you know, with blackbirds and everything. So my granddad had a 22 rifle. He just kept it laying up against the tree. And if he ever needed to use it, use it. Oh, well, one day all the grownups were inside and I was outside by myself, and I saw that rifle, and I thought, boy, it would be so cool to shoot that rifle. I think I was about four. <laughs> and uh, so I went out, and I picked up that rifle, and I shot it. And I shot a hole right in the side of my granddad's all-time favorite car. He had a red Ford that he just loved. And then I dropped the rifle, and then Mom, Granny, and Pop came running out, and they said, Shane, did you shoot that rifle? And what did I say? No. And I mean, there's no one around anywhere, even close. No, I didn't. Obviously, I was guilty. Oh, why did I lie? Well, because I thought there was somebody else I was going to have to answer to, because I had a defect of character. But you see, when you have no defect in character, and there's no one higher than you to answer, then it's not like God wakes up and says, I think I'll tell the truth today. 
It's that God, by his very nature, could not tell a lie. Because there's no standard he has to answer to and no weakness or deficiency, nothing lacking. So, later here in this same chapter, notice what the writer says down in verse 17. Hebrews 6, 17. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is, notice what it says, impossible for God to lie. Not just he chooses not to, it is impossible for him not to lie or to lie. Same thing over in chapter one of James. If you go to the next book of the Bible, In James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Notice what it says here. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Neither does he tempt any man. So then, when we say that God is good, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying now, if something good happens to you today, you cannot say God is good. No, I just want us to say it more than, than I do. Not just when things are going as I wish or hope, but to say it all the time, even when things are bad, especially when things are bad. Because it is a reminder that whatever I'm experiencing, it does not change the deeper underlying reality of who God is. As verse 17 says here of James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is No variation or shadow due to change. Christy left me a wonderful gift. She had a wonderful artistic flair, and she made this beautiful colored chalk inscription. Change and decay and all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. That's really what we're saying when we say that God is good. But... That still hasn't quite answered this problem. Yes, God is perfectly good in his nature, but then we're still left with this question. Well, then why do evil and suffering exist? So now that we've looked at the first part of this, if God was good, just making sure we understand, what are we confessing when we say that? We're saying something about God's ultimate nature, all right? Well, what about this second point? If God was good, he would prevent All evil and suffering. Is that necessarily true? Look with me over in Psalm 104, just for a moment. Psalm 104. Look at verse 14. This is a creation psalm celebrating God's great work as a creator. Psalm 104, verse 14 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. This text says that God causes grass to grow for livestock. Now, when the cow cow chews the grass, is that good for the grass? Not really. But it is really good for the cow And I, for one, am very grateful that cattle are able to feed so then they get fat so then I can have a nice steak. So that's what the Bible says here, that there is bad that happens to the grass, 
but it is serving a greater good. It feeds the cow. I really thought there'd be a more enthusiastic response to the whole thing about the, maybe I'm in a group of vegetarians this morning. Is that what's going on here? So let me show you another verse in this same Psalm. Look at verse 21. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. We've all seen videos of the lion chasing down the gazelle, and usually we root for the gazelle. But we don't want the lion, a carnivore, to starve to death either. And yes, when the gazelle becomes food for the lion, it's no, not good for the gazelle, but it is good for the lion. It nourishes the lion. And by the way, notice that verse 21 says, this is food that comes from God for the lion. Now, of course, we in modern science, we call this the, the food chain or the food web. But what scripture is telling us is that God is sustaining his creation and that he has a purpose to do that. And that within that purpose, there are some things that may suffer, like the grass or like the gazelle, but it achieves some greater good. Which means this point here, if God was good, he would prevent evil and suffering, is only true if we are absolutely certain that it couldn't be the case that God may permit evil and suffering to happen because he can bring from it an even greater good. But if it turns out that God brings a greater good through evil and suffering, then that point is not true. And if I were to ask you to think, can you think of any examples of stories in the Bible where God permits evil and suffering to take place? so that he can bring about a greater good? Is there a story that comes to your mind? If I were to just ask you, like if I ask for, who said it over here? Joseph, the story of Joseph. Joseph is the favored son of his father, Jacob. His brothers hate him. That's not a word used a lot. And in Genesis 37, it's used three times about Joseph's brothers. They hate him. Remember, why do they hate him? He's the favorite. Why else? He has the special clothing. The text says he has these dreams in which he sees his brothers bowing down to him. They don't particularly like that. He, uh, he reports to their father when they do wrong, and this is not tattletelling. Because if you remember Genesis 35 and Genesis 38, these brothers are capable of tremendous evil. So they hate him. And they are going to kill him. You remember the story. And then Judah says, well, you know, if we kill him, we're not going to make any money. We ought to sell him to these slave traders. At least we can make a little bit of money in the process. And it's tempting for us, knowing how the story turns out, to assume that Joseph was pretty much okay with all this. Like, you know, he's thinking when he's down in that cistern, oh, you know, someday the Glen Springs Road Church is going to do a VBS and I'm going to be the main character and this is going to be wonderful. So everything is just fine. Well, that is not true. As a matter of fact, later in the account in Genesis 42, when his brothers first show up and he's now in Pharaoh's court and they don't recognize him, he hears them say, did, are we not being paid back for when we heard our brother 
beg for his life. Joseph was terrified. But then, in Genesis 45, when he hears his brother Judah say, I would be willing to give my life in exchange for the life of Benjamin. You familiar with the story? Joseph says, I'm Joseph. And then he says to them there, and then again at the end of the book in Genesis 50, that you sent me here, but as he says in Genesis 50, God meant it for good. And through that circumstance, Jake, uh, Joseph is able to provide food not only for his own family, but actually to kind of give a down payment of the promise to Abraham that through Abraham's family, all families of the earth will be blessed. Because remember, everybody's coming to Egypt to get grain. And the thing that I would just remind you of about that story is that when Joseph is introduced to us in the story, Genesis 37 says he's 17 years old. At the time that he comes to the second position in Pharaoh's palace, I think he's 30. 13 years. 13 years before he realizes there is a greater good I could see. So here's what that means on a practical level. Christie's been dead for three and a half years. As it turns out, I think I can say quite confidently that I have seen a greater good come from that, that frankly, I could not imagine even happening had she not gotten cancer and died. A good for her and a good for me. I think I can say that. But suppose I can't. Three and a half years later, right now, I can't say that. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just means that I may not see it. For 13 years, Joseph, I'm sure, could not even imagine how God was going to work through this. And to be quite frank about it, I'm not promising that you will ever in this life be able to fully see, oh, now I can see a good that God is doing, a way that God is working through my sorrow. But I do think because of the goodness of God, we can trust that he is at work. Now, I don't say any of this to minimize anyone's suffering. When I sat across the table for my young friend, Barrett, I guess it was Tuesday, I said, first thing we need to do, Barrett, is we need to confront squarely what you have lost because of epilepsy. And we just spent a lot of time in heartache, thinking about how his dreams that he anticipated have been dashed. And so I'm not saying what I'm saying here as if, if you've just had a recent heartbreak in your life, this is supposed to make it all better. As I said a moment ago, people who are grieving don't need syllogisms. They just need sympathy. But my goal today has been to reassure all of us that God is indeed good and that God works through evil and suffering to bring about greater goods such that suffering is real and suffering is painful, but suffering is not the final word. I love this statement that Paul makes 
in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, I believe even when I am greatly afflicted. And if you go back and read, he's quoting from a psalmist who is surrounded by enemies. But then the psalmist says, even in my affliction, I said, I believe. Paul was in the midst of suffering when he writes 2 Corinthians. But he says, I have the same spirit as that guy. I believe even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. And so I can say to you, I prayed for Christy more than I've ever prayed for anything in my life. Many of you did, just as you have prayed for those suffering in your midst. And I wanted so much for her to be healed. I wanted so much for us to have more time together. And if she had been healed, I would certainly say that God is good. But I know that God used our suffering to refine our faith, to prepare us to be with him in eternity. And because he lacks nothing, I'm sure he can make that happen. And because of Christ, I know he can make it happen. And so even though I stand before you still grieving, I can say that even in my affliction, I believe that God is good all the time. And I hope the things that we've talked about today have been an encouragement to you. And I'd be okay with me, depending on the leadership here. If you all wanted to do a little bit of a Q&A, if there's something you'd like to ask me about, or either from the first hour or the second hour, I'd sure be glad to do that. If anybody has anything to ask or even to add. Or is, uh, is this, uh, what's this place we're going to eat again? Is this one love place so good? You're thinking, let's just turn and go eat. I'm, I'm ready to go. But if you've got anything you'd like to ask uh, from either our, yeah, go right ahead. Uh, I just want to thank you for sharing your story. And um, my, my daughter died three weeks ago. And my friend Chris and I think it comes in. And it's been a great reminder that there may be some good that other people experience just a severe suffering. So it's been wonderful to hear you speak. And I appreciate it. Well, first of all, thank you so much for coming today. And uh, thank you so much for sharing what's on your heart. And uh, I appreciate your willingness to open up in front of a, a group of people that you don't know and to share that. And uh, I will say that one of the things that you are going to experience over the next few months is you're going to find out many more people have gone through what you've gone through than you ever realized. And... Uh, they may be slow at first to tell you that because you know now what it's like. But you're going to find that so many other people have had to walk down this road. And I've gone through the same experience with my loss. And I have found personally that just knowing there are other people who've gone down the same road uh, doesn't make the hurt any less real. But it sure helps to have people to share it with.
And uh, I think you would find that to be true, especially of this church as well. This is a good group of people. I was talking a moment ago about marry people to suffer with. You got to worship with people to suffer with as well, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But God bless you and what you're experiencing. Define what good means. And I, I think that is, is the issue. Um, in in uh, 21st century America, God is Santa Claus. And so he's good because he gives you cool stuff that you don't have to work for. No one really seems to say God is good when you work really hard against something. You know, it's, it's really it's when you get a check in the mail. That, that you, you've got a tax refund. God is good. Um, certainly they don't say that when you have a struggle. And so we have to, we have to define what good means. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I think that, that's an important uh, uh, point to make uh, because people make that argument. The other thing is that bad things happen um, because of sin, and that's Satan. You know, um, someone you know who was killed in a car accident by a drunk driver is not because of God, but it happened. It's because of the sin committed by the drunk driver. And that sin is from Satan. So the only deficit that could be placed on God is that He allowed Satan. I don't know why he chose to do that other than to say he wants us to choose to follow him and so he needed us to have an alternative that's called free will. But it's not God's failure, it's Satan's presence that causes this to happen. Yeah, I think that what you just said is a beautiful example of why evil and suffering requires both an emotional response, but also a thoughtful response. Because these things are all interconnected. How we feel about things is shaped by how we think about things. How we think about things is shaped by how we, how we feel about things. And I think that uh, one of the big takeaways from my own experience through thinking about these things has been to realize just how fundamental love is to who God is and to the story of the Bible. That, you know, God is love. He exists in an eternal loving relationship. He created us for love. But when we start to think about what love really involves, love involves a choice. So, uh, I mean, I could have tried to program a robot but uh, to be my wife, but that would have uh, been a dismal failure. Uh, Christie's love was love because uh, for some reason, she chose to love me. And uh, for many obvious reasons, I chose to love her. But it is a choice. And when we think about how powerful love is as a choice, we start to then think about that within that choice is also the possibility for a choice to be deficient to make bad choices, make bad decisions. And sometimes those bad choices and bad decisions, they're meaningful. They have real significance 
they have real consequence. And sometimes our choices can bring harm and evil to others, like the choices that Joseph's brothers made. But we also believe that God has the, the power to work, to work through those things so that, uh, so that the suffering will not be the end of the story. Those are the things I've thought about. But I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. You can go back to the garden. The man and woman were created. And the garden was there. Everything was good. Everything. Because that's what we made. And so you can look at that and see what God anticipated and wanted for good. But who was in existence at that time? What's that? We need to understand that Satan predates even man because he then came in the form of a serpent and the serpent got nailed by the Lord. <laughs> now he had to crawl. But that didn't mean that Satan wasn't already there. So Satan was in existence, but God anticipated one good. It's when Satan got into man that everything went back. I mean, he, he cursed the, the land because of that sin. He cursed man in the sense that you're going to have to work now. It's, it's going to be harder on you. Childbearing is going to be harder. You're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. Mm-hmm. Things happened then that were bad. Yeah. God did not create bad right. in the beginning. Yeah, so a couple of you brought up the, you know, the question of Satan and the, the existence of Satan. And, you know, a lot of times when we think about free will and love and sin, we think about it only as from a human point of view. But the scriptures talk about other kinds of creatures who have been made, who also are made with the capacity to choose and to love, but also to choose not to love and to sin. Remember that Jesus says that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. And 2 Peter 2 says in verse 4 that angels sinned and fell. Jude 6 says very much the same thing. And though, though uh, the Bible does not spell this all out in a simple formula, if we believe that God created what is good and we believe there are creatures given freedom to choose love and not and that some of those creatures are angelic creatures, then you can, I think, make a reasonable case that uh, Satan would be one of those kinds of beings. And uh, there's a little bit of a hint. Again, it's not all spelled out. Some questions are not wrapped up with a nice, tidy bow like I wish they were, you know. But uh, there's a hint in 1 Timothy 3 when Paul talks about the qualities of an elder And he says that an elder is not to be a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And that passage sort of seems to suggest that conceit or pride is the reason why. I remember when I was a little kid, growing up in Winchester, Kentucky, we were were talking about appointing elders and deacons in our congregation. And... uh, I remember thinking one day, well, I probably can't. I was 11 years old. I remember thinking, I probably can't be an elder, but maybe I could be a deacon. You know, So I was already ambitiously climbing my way to the top. Well, that's actually what Paul is talking about. Not a new convert, 
lest he be lifted up by pride. And uh, some of you may have read uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost, his poetic telling of the fall. Or if you're really cultured, maybe you've seen The Wrath of Khan. And uh, in uh, The Wrath of Khan, uh, Khan says, and he's quoting Satan from Paradise Lost, "'Tis better to reign in hell than serve in heaven." Pride. And so if we were to think about some of these ultimate questions, these are really great questions, and they are deep questions about the origin of evil and suffering. But if we think about God as perfectly good and evil as the lack of goodness, and that that happens through choices that creatures who've been given freedom can make, it explains evil among us, and it also explains evil in other creatures, you know, even like angelic creatures. But it all comes back to love. But the one thing about that is just to remember that um, because God is good and because that goodness is his perfect existence, then whatever God makes and shares with existence is in a sense also sharing in his love and goodness. And this is one thing that really came home to me when Christy and I were going through the last stages. We read a book. I'd recommend it to you. It's not a perfect book, but it's a book called A Grace Disguised. My guy's name is uh, Jerry Sitzer. He lost his wife, mother, and a child in a drunk driving accident. And the drunk driver got off to top, to top it all. So I wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. But this is one of the points that really emerged to me, that if you believe God is love and you believe that in creation he's sharing his love and existence with us, then what it means is you were loved into existence. And what it means is, and this is what really hit home to us, every moment we exist is proof that God loves us and that he is good. And that doesn't mean that our life was not also punctuated by some very sad things. But it helped us to see that the evil we were and suffering we were experiencing is taking place in a bigger context of God's, uh, God's love and goodness. So those are some things I've thought about in connection with some of these very deep questions you all are asking. Well, why, don't we take, uh, why don't we take one more, maybe? Call it a day. You all have been very patient today. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Uh, I just uh, lost my wife of uh, 47 years. <clears throat> what I want to say is there's three words that have come to me along with many of the people here that come with words. And those three words are from God and are simply said. I've got this. That's what God is telling me. And I believe it. I've got this. Yeah, oh, that's great. You know, um, Christy and I know we were old when we got here. You know, we were in our early 40s. And we sometimes we would talk about, this is so tragic. We just got married. We didn't even get one year in before tragedy happened. And then as we knew we were facing her impending death, we would talk a lot about this is so, 
so tragic because we've had such a short amount of time together. And then I remember uh, right after Christie's cancer came back, our car died. Like, this is how things happen, you know. And somebody at church found out, uh, a dear lady, uh, Sylvia Chapman. And uh, she had lost her husband a few years before Christy and I moved there. And he had been a very successful businessman. Uh, and uh, so she was a, like, no-nonsense lady. So, but she came to me and she said, uh, let's go get some pie after Bible study tonight. And I said, okay. So we went to get some pie. And what she was doing was she was taking me out to say, so how much money do we need to get this car fixed? She just wrote me a big check just right there. I mean, she's an unbelievably generous person. I don't know why it was then, but as I sat across the table talking to her, it hit me, she and, and her husband, Bob, I think they were married, it was well over 50 years. I can't remember what the exact number is. But I just remember realizing, because I'm not a very bright person, that as painful as it is for Christy and for me to say goodbye after just a few years, what if we'd been together as long as they it would be only worse. And so what I'm just saying is, I know what my circumstance was like. I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose a spouse after the amount of time that you all had together. All I can, all I can do is count on the very thing that you said, to trust in God's power to see us through it. But I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, your all's willingness to share, as you've talked about, very difficult things that you're going through. And I know there are many other stories to tell, but uh, it, helps to, uh, it, it helps to remember that uh, you've got people in the trench suffering uh, with you uh, more than, than it's possible to, uh, to say. Well, uh, thank you all so very much for spending this time together. I know this has been, uh, this has been a Tough morning. I will tell you this. I one time spoke on a weekend series where they had four speakers. There was me to talk about grief. One guy talked about drug addiction. One guy talked about having an affair. And there was one other terrible trauma. That was not exactly a feel-good pick-me-up week. So you only, she only got one this week. And that's the point that I'm saying. It could have been a lot worse. That's the... Uh, that's the main point I want you all to see. But uh, I hope this can be uh, of help and, and encouragement uh, for the time that we've spent together. So, Phil, I'll turn it over to you, buddy. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, again, these lessons are up on the live stream. Uh, they'll be on our YouTube channel. And uh, I think if you're thinking what I'm thinking, I want to share these and uh, share this with others. And I, I like to say, Shane, I, I kept, I'm still amazed and was thinking how, uh, how you could say good, better, good comes from this. I, I'm not there. Uh, I try to be with, with things, but uh, I appreciate that. That's, a, that's inspiring. I think it is true. You sometimes may not know. Uh, till later, but it's just good to know that we have a good God and He's in control. Thank you. Thank you very, very, very much. This was uh, very helpful. Um, 
We're going to go uh, have some lunch together. If you'd like to join us, please do so uh, and hang out. Those of you who are here and visiting and haven't got the chance to hang out with Shane, it'd be your time to do that. I get Shane uh, a lot. In fact, we're going to hang out just the next few days together. Uh, we've been uh, having kind of a preacher study for years, and it's something I cherish. Have you ever told him the official name? <laughs> Actually, it's from Chris. So my beloved wife gave a name to this study that Phil and Jeff Olson and I do for young preachers. She called it SPAM, the Smarty Pants Association of Ministers. <laughs> and I think she probably considered me the gross jelly part in the This is a time for, uh, for us to get together, hang out together, share together. Uh, but we also had some other time with Shane, so we're going to be able to do it right now. Mark, Mark, Bruce, uh, y'all got anything else you need? All right, Shane's going to speak for us tomorrow. Uh, it won't be on Greek uh, tomorrow. Uh, he's going to tie into our theme for the year to uh, revive, return, revive, respond as we look at the church in Ephesus. And so I'm going to be sharing some lessons along those lines. So we look forward to that. All right. All right, let's just close it out with a prayer. Our loving Father, we can't help it this morning but to come before your throne and to proclaim your goodness. You are indeed good, Father. We thank you for that. While at times it may be hard for us to see goodness in this world, we know that it's there because you're there. And dear Lord, we're thankful for your servant Shane, who's reminded of that this morning. Dear Lord, we've also heard from those that are really hurting. And we pray that your strong, powerful arm of compassion your strong, powerful arm of love may hold these dear hearts this morning. Hold them up and lift them up so that they can feel your goodness and to feel your love. And we pray to you, Lord. We pray to your Lord that even when we're dealing with great loss, that we can remember part of those that we love dearly are still here with us. But the best part is that they're with you. And that's where we want to be and long to be. To be in that good land forevermore that is free from all pain and suffering. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon that city where our Savior Jesus reigns and where He is in control, clearly just like He's in control here. But we'll feel it even more there. We thank You for that hope. We thank You for that salvation. And we ask all this in His precious name. Amen. The Lord is in His holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in North Central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time. God bless. Keep silence before.